flying 2 a.m. in the morning uh, to go and rescue someone who may have had a car accident. You want the, the best of the best. Oil and gas, they, they want the best of the best. You're listening to episode 17 of the Rory Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Heaps of things happening here at Rotary Wing Show headquarters in Brisbane, Australia. And I just want to say hey, thank you so much for joining me again uh, this week uh, from wherever you are in the world as we get a chance to sit down and talk uh, helicopters again. So this week, or last couple of weeks, I had a couple of things going on. So my instructor renewal is out of the road now and done. So I'm uh, licensed and uh, dangerous for another two years to, to go and scare some uh, students. And it's been a great chance just to dust off some of the cobwebs on the theory side of things that you don't always sort of touch on as you're doing the normal day-to-day work. So Ian Paul was the examiner, and he's a look a top guy. And one of the questions he asked me in the in the ground trap section that I couldn't really I struggled to actually work it out while I was standing there on my feet was if you're in an aircraft and you're descending at a thousand foot per minute, what's the actual vertical speed in knots that you would impact the ground at? So we're talking just the the vertical component the speed directly down in knots if you're at a 1,000 foot per minute rate of ascent. So if you know the answer, or if you want to pause the, the podcast now and work it out, then drop the answer on the, the show Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash rotarywingshow. You also see some Movember uh, photos there on the page. So our team's raised $3,375 for men's health, uh, which is a pretty good effort. So kudos to our team captain there, Tyson Pierce, for getting us all moving in the same direction and uh, and getting that off the ground and working and, and pushing everyone through to get that done. And you'll see some photos there also from Oliver. So Oliver contacted me on Tuesday. So he's out of the US Air Force now. He used to be a, a C-17 loadmaster. And he's actually currently studying at the University of Central Missouri through one of their aviation programs. I think from what he was saying, he's going to be the test bunny. He's one of the first helicopter pilots actually to go through the university there. And he's on the, uh, the veterans program. And he actually had a, a uni assignment that he had to get done. And uh, he actually, I was on the other side, so he was interviewing me for his university assignment. So that was a bit of fun. So Oliver, if you're listening, great to hear from you and best of luck with the assignment. So Tuesday night, I had a, another speaking gig at our local chamber of commerce, just for the local business owners. And I actually got a chance to talk about this podcast and about all you folks who are listening and telling some of the stories of people who have contacted me uh, from the world, like, like Oliver, and... You know, hopefully inspiring some local business owners to give this uh, podcasting thing a crack also. And then last night, I was at a Defence in Business event in Brisbane, hosted by Boeing Defence Australia. And we got a chance to have a presentation there on the projects that uh, Boeing's working on in Australia, and some of the complexities involved. And look, these are really big projects with lots of moving parts and uncertainty built in. And so just last month, Boeing actually picked up a 25-year contract to train the Australian Navy and Army helicopter pilots. So uh, they're doing big things in that space here at the moment, here locally. All right, and this one's a bit of a exclusive, I guess. For, I'm mentioning it now. I've sort of had it on the, the back burner for a couple of weeks, getting some background stuff organised. But World Helicopter Day is going to be coming up in 2015 for the first one. So date will be TBA, and I figure if I publicly commit to you guys now, then I, I can't back out. And basically the, the background for it is there's, there's all these world international days. So there's, there's World Porridge Day, uh, World Earth Day, candy, Cotton Candy Day, Techno Day, and we don't have anything for helicopters. So I figure we need something to the community to actually recognise the role that helicopters play and to celebrate these you know awesome machines that we operate. And I'd love to involve as many of you guys listening as possible. So if you have a, a great idea, but what to do on World Helicopter Day, then get in touch and let's make this a, a really fun event and see if we can get this off the ground next year and run this every year. So I'm super conscious of your time. So let's get stuck into today's interview. It's pretty rare for aircrew to stick with the, the one employer for their entire career. So that means 
that somewhere along the line, you're going to need to go through the recruiting and interviewing process if you want to keep growing your skill sets and your experience base. And like anything you do on such an infrequent basis, chances are that you, you suck at it unless you really spend some time uh, preparing for it in advance. And in today's interview, Mark Whedon takes us through the recruiting process for CHC Helicopters Asia Pacific so that you can be better prepared for your next job change and have an insight into what recruiters are actually thinking about while they're going through the process and looking at you and your application and your CVs and, and looking at it from their side of the fence. So there are a heap of new things that I picked up talking to Mark. So hopefully you'll come away from this with a few action items and tips of your own that you can use to actually help build your helicopter career progression. Mark Whedon, thank you for joining us on the Rotary Wing Show today. You're welcome, Mick. All right, Mark, so we're going to, we're going to talk a heap about recruiting and, and there's no shortage of questions that I know uh, aircrew have on this side of things because it's you know something we go through every time we're trying to progress in our careers and things like that. And it's just one of those, I guess, necessary evils and maybe we can get a bit of an idea from the recruiting side. So, Mark, can you just explain your position there as, as CHC Helicopters? Sure. Yeah, so I uh, predominantly focus on the recruitment of uh, pilots and um, I oversee the recruitment of our engineers and uh, uh, head office support staff and I also look after our air crewmen and rescue crewmen um, for our search and rescue capabilities. And what's your background? How did you end up as the, the recruiting lead there at CHC? Yeah. And, and are you actually, are you just for the Australasian area or are you CHC Global? So um, we're a global business. Um, we, we have uh, four sort of recruitment leads, I suppose, in, in each different region, uh, Brazil, North America, Europe, and Australia, Asia Pacific. So I look after um, the recruitment function for um, the Asia Pacific, so uh, inclusive of Australia and Southeast Asia. That's my remit. I, uh, I used to work uh, in recruitment uh, originally for airlines and um, I was contacted by a recruiter on LinkedIn. Uh, maybe throughout this discussion, I'll, I'll explain what, what the powerful tool LinkedIn is in the recruitment process. But I was approached on LinkedIn, and the timing was right, and it was a, a good career move. So I moved over to Perth, and I've been enjoying the challenges ever since. And yeah, absolutely, we talk about LinkedIn later on because I definitely know all my sort of cohort um, through PilotWise and training things like that are, are pretty much now on, on LinkedIn. It seems like a, a very central place for the aviation community. Absolutely, and I think it's a, it's a great forum for not just uh, recruitment or job opportunities for um, difficult questions and answers. Uh, it's a great forum to discuss different issues that certain pilots may have, uh, CRM, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The list goes on. But uh, also uh, LinkedIn in, in terms of keeping in contact uh, the pilot uh, lifestyle in regards to offshore oil and gas, and it can chop and change a lot uh, just due to contracts changing, that sort of thing. And what we find is a number of different pilots are interested in locational stability. So uh, if uh, one contract's lost in, in, in Melbourne, for example, or Brisbane, uh, what happens is an, another player picks up that contract, but that pilot still wants to remain in Melbourne or Brisbane for whatever reason, they'll transition to the other business who wins that contract. So if uh, we, I may speak to pilots today, but um, we may only really progress with the job opportunity 12 to 24 months down the line. So it's just a great tool for keeping in contact and, and keeping and both sides, both parties uh, abreast of what's happening in, in, in their world. Okay, we might touch on that as we get down towards the, mm. the um, interview stage and things like that. Before we sure. go down there, if we can just talk about CHC itself as far mm -hmm. as give people an idea of the, the scale and uh, how, how large the company is and your operations. Sure. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Globally, we've got 250-plus uh, uh, aircraft. Uh, we operate in, in Australia, we've got 48, and uh, that's we, we operate Augusta 139s. Bell 412s, uh, we operate the Pumas and the Super Pumas, we operate uh, Dolphins, so AS365s, um, EC145s, EC135s, uh, we've got uh, the S76s, the Skorsky 76s and the S92s as well, so we've got quite a diverse fleet uh, ranging from small twin-engined aircraft up to uh, large twin aircraft and uh, in, in Australia we've got about 700 staff, um, 200 odd pilots, uh, 70 odd air crew, um, inclusive of rescue crewmen and air crewmen, and then about 150 engineers um, across all the different three business units. We've got three predominant business units. We've got the offshore oil and gas, um, 
This is all multi-crew IFR. Flying, so it's all first light to last light. Uh, we've got EMS, so emergency medical services. This is all single pilot IFR and uh, it can be challenging uh, flying conditions. You can be called out any time of day in, in different weather conditions. And uh, we've got search and rescue for the RAFSAR. We um, conduct search and rescue for all of their fast jet trainers. Um, again, that's multi-crew IFR and, and, and it can be night flying, it can be day flying. And then uh, our latest sort of area that we have diversed into is offshore SAR, so the first of its kind in Australia, where we've got multi-crew all-weather IFR capability, um, where we, we do search and rescue for any, anything that happens out on the rigs, for example. Okay, and just within Australia and I guess in globally, so you'd probably be the biggest helicopter company in Australia? Uh, yes, we, we're definitely uh, one of the biggest, um, uh, I suppose, biggest in terms of, um, it, it may differ in terms of number of aircraft, sort of revenue, et cetera, et cetera, but we're definitely one of the biggest uh, aircraft operators uh, or helicopter operators in, in, the, in the world globally, and we operate across 40 different countries. But yes, we are a, a key player in Australia. Okay, and in the areas here in Australia, so you obviously, as you said, you got SAR, EMS, and the oil and gas. What, where are the where are the bases in Australia for CHC? Sure. So our offshore bases are. We've got uh, for offshore oil and gas. We've got Karatha, Broome, Darwin. Uh, we also operate Southeast Asia, so Billy and Murray in Southeast Asia. Um, our SAR capability. We've got a base in Tyndall Northern Territory. We've got a base at TS in um, Perth. We've got Amberley in Brisbane, uh, Williamtown in New South Wales, um, and we've got uh, East Sale in Victoria. Um, we also operate some shorter-term contracts at daytime medivac out of South Australia in Port Lincoln. Um, we operate police contracts in Essendon and um, some EMS contracts in Bendigo, Orange, Bankstown, Wollongong, Canberra, um, Latrobe Valley. Um, so majority of our offshore oil and gas bases are all west coast and then majority of our EMS operations and SAR operations are on the east coast. Perfect. So yeah, I just want to give listeners an idea of you know the scope of operations and the scale and the size of the company so it makes sense as we start getting into the recruitment process uh, they can kind of fit that into what you guys are doing so yeah mm-hmm. look if um if we can move into that recruiting side now sure. and uh, you know the question there is you know what, what keeps recruiters and especially aviation recruiters up at night you know what are the things that kind of yeah. stress and, and are challenging for you guys Sure, absolutely. Um, with uh, with an aviation, I suppose it's it's a dynamic environment and a dynamic industry where there's always changes depending on different contract wins and contract change updates and um, internal moves. Uh, I suppose, uh, for example, I may have a vacancy in in PS for a first officer today, and um, I start. But actively recruiting people for that position, we may have an internal. Uh, we've got a great internal movement program through our EBA. So we may a week later we may have someone on the east coast, or in Williamtown, for example, who says, "Oh no, well I'd actually like to transfer to PS." So what happens is we'll be running a recruitment people for a recruitment process for people who are interested in Western Australia, um, and within a week that vacancy is no longer in Western Australia, but it's in Williamtown. So I suppose locational for people who want local Locational stability, um, it can be a longer process for them. Um, what we do is we actively recruit throughout the year, regardless of where we've got positions, and we, we clear people for hire. So we'll run through the recruitment process, we'll clear them for hire, and then they'll sit on a wait list or a pipeline, as we like to call it. And they will be sitting in that pipeline. Some people say, I don't mind where I go, um, I'll move anywhere for a position. Other people say, well, I've got certain family um, considerations to make, so I can't leave these certain areas. And what will happen? is once we've run through the internal process, uh, Pierce versus Williamtown, like I've mentioned previously, we would already have people on the pipeline who were who had listed Williamtown as a preferred base. What that means is the, the person who we we had lined up, so to speak, for Pierce, we would then offer it to them and say, unfortunately, we don't have Pierce anymore. We've got Williamtown. Would that be of interest to you? Um, sometimes it is. Sometimes they go, no, it's not of interest. And then what we would have to do is keep them on the pipeline until such time as another vacancy opened up at Pierce where they were 
we're interested in it. So the process, what's challenging is being able to offer a timeline. Um, we, we, don't, we, we, we actively recruit throughout the year regardless of where our vacancies are, how many we're going to have. And the difficult part is, I suppose, is, is telling people, yes, we'll have a vacancy within three weeks at this base because things can change. So that's probably one of the most challenging parts is, is just um, setting expectations and, and staying in constant communications with, with candidates. And when you're dealing in the hundreds, uh, it's just making sure that everyone's keeping everyone up to date on, on their movements and, and, and we're keeping candidates up to date on what vacancies are available. Okay, actually, that's a really good insight there because often you kind of think of a, you know, a job vacancy comes up and then you put out an ad in the paper and we'll talk about where you guys actually list your jobs and then you think Absolutely. about you know, CVs coming in and, and going from there. But so, mm-hmm. you, so your HR department's basically got a continuous process of, as you said, filling that funnel, having a bench of people that then get first, you know, that's your first port of call then when a position does come up. Yes, absolutely. Our, our process from um, from day one of induction, um, we, we provide uh, initial type ratings for candidates. So you don't necessarily have to have flown one of our aircraft types before. We'll provide you with that training. But from day one in induction to uh, until you've uh, done your um, initial type training, which is usually in a simulator overseas. You have some field leave when you get back, and um, there's some training that you do. Your line checks everything. It's usually about a two- to three-month process between hiring someone and, and having them actually flying the line in, uh, as a revenue flight. So there's a three-month backlog, I suppose. So what we do is we proactively pipeline and clear candidates for hire so that we have a number of candidates and a number of pilots already cleared for hire. We've done background checks. We've run through the entire recruitment process so that for example if we do have a, a, a new contract starting up we can call them that day and say can you put your notice in wherever you are and you start in four weeks time so we can line them up with the next induction because it takes uh, roughly 90 to 120 days to get them flying the line. Okay we might touch on that later on but that's a sure. you know, as you said like a three-month investment before someone's mm-hmm. pulled in any revenue for the company so that must then come into the recruitment process about what you're looking for someone. Uh, so we might talk about that as sure. we get there. When a position does come up, do you generate new description positions or the contracts and the work you've been doing now long enough that you've pretty much got a, a description and you can just pull a file for you know the pilot command or co-pilot? Yeah, we've got uh, position descriptions, uh, set position descriptions for sort of first officer, senior first officer, uh, captain, and certain criteria that have to be met in order to uh, achieve those different positions. We don't change position descriptions uh, due to different contracts. Um, uh, all of our conditions are listed in, in the EBAs. We've got some robust uh, EBAs and we're governed by the EBA. So. Can you yes, quickly, yeah. sorry, Mark, just explain on what an EBA is for um, for uh, people uh, outside bargaining, Sure, an enterprise bargaining agreement, whereas it's one contract for all pilots that's agreed to between the union, ourselves, and the pilot groups, the pilot representatives. So it's a governing contract, that, um, and it's all the working conditions that the, the pilots will work to. And so you got one of those for the company as opposed to being individual role or um, contract? Yes. Yes. So all pilots fall under the same conditions, which are prescribed in the EBA. And uh, we have different EBAs for different uh, classifications. So pilots have an EBA, engineers have an EBA, air crewmen, rescue crewmen have an EBA, and, and, and that sort of thing. So it's uh, everyone, everyone uh, it, it lists all the conditions of working for CHC, and we abide by those EBAs in line with what is prescribed in them. Now, Mark, if we go back to the, the process in, where mm-hmm. where does CHC list their, their jobs? So if you want to go and see what the current positions are or sure. roles are? Great. Uh, yeah, well, CHC website is a great start on our careers page. All vacancies go up onto our careers page. You can also set yourself up with job alerts. So if you if you uh, um, sign up uh, and uh, sort of put in an expression of interest, you can set yourself up for job alerts. So when, when we do advertise a new vacancy, you'll get an email saying CHC is looking for, uh, for example, a captain flying the 225 um, out of Broome. And then you can go onto the website, get more details. We also advertise on LinkedIn. Um, we don't to advertise any pilot um, positions through SEEK. Uh, it's uh, the, the ratio of uh, applications to hires through SEEK isn't really um, viable, I suppose. And then we also advertise on the AFAP website uh, in some instances, which is the, the union website. On LinkedIn, is that paid advertising or is it purely just listing on the CHC company page on LinkedIn? 
we have both. We do. We have company LinkedIn pages, but we've also got paid advertising. We have uh, certain agreements with LinkedIn, which uh, actually takes our adverts internally and posts them on LinkedIn as well. All right. So you've spoken about the bench and the fact that if you're filling a position, you'll go internally before you have to go yes. outside to fill that position. Yes, absolutely. All all vacancies are advertised internally first, and if we don't find uh, any interest internally, um, we will we will then advertise externally. And I think you've also answered this too, but in Australia, you know, there's different rules around, you know, the obligation of alerting people to a job and actually advertising for positions. And sometimes it can be frustrating because often, you know, you, the company's already found someone internally, but they're obligated to advertise the position mm-hmm. anyway. Is there that, that sort of thing going or because you've got that more general funnel, it's that pipeline, it's not such a... Uh, yeah. No, issue. no, it's it's not such an issue for us. We do advertise. Majority of our roles are advertised because um, uh, we are building pipelines as well. So um, if if we never advertise and rely just completely on uh, sort of internal applicants or people we knew of, that pipeline would stop being built. So we do always advertise our positions, and uh, it, it's based on merit as well. Sometimes we we get internal applicants that they don't meet the hour requirements. Um, required to fly on certain contracts so we aren't able to progress with them and in that instance we would uh, then look externally as well. But the majority of our positions are all advertised. You talk to chief pilots uh, just casually or you know you read on forums and things like that and it sounds like they're overwhelmed with CVs and you know if you go to their office they'll pull out the, the top drawer of the, the filing cabinet and uh, yep. you know it's all the CVs that have been sent through are, are sitting there <laughs> yeah. and it's kind of like you know don't yeah don't just send you a CV unannounced how many CVs mm-hmm. would you have on file like how, when you open a job position you know yeah. how yeah. inundated do you get sure and I've just checked our recruitment system uh, we've got thousands of uh, CVs on file globally. We've got a global system, so we've got a global touring pool, and people do transfer between Asia Pacific and, and global touring. So we've got thousands on there. Um, qualified uh, Australian pilots with ATPLs and Australian licensing. We've got 584 on file at the moment. So those are pre-qualified people who have residency, etc., etc., etc. But uh, yes, the chief pilots do get a lot of uh, emails with. Uh, with vacancy requests and here's my CV, do you have anything for me? Um, what happens is that gets forwarded on to my department and uh, we'll um, touch base with the person and get them to apply online so we can capture all of their information and uh, ensure we are sort of pipelining them as appropriate. Or sometimes if they don't meet the hour requirements, we'll let them know exactly what they need to go out and get in order to make them, I suppose, competitive for a position with ourselves. And with that number of CVs on file and as a HR department and recruiters, do you, mm-hmm. is it a pain to get more or do you actively you'd like to have more CVs on file for reference? What's the... Absolutely, absolutely. So what we've got is um, we've got an, an expressions of interest. So that um, that's an expressions of interest as a pilot. Are you interested in flying for CHC? Upload your CV. Now, we, we go through that. We we trawl through those CVs, um, pulling out uh, uh, rec- uh, relatively qualified uh, pilots in terms of our contracts and, and if they are suitable, um, we will uh, give them a call and process further from there. But yes, we do like people to keep applying. Um, the, the main thing to take note of is it, it could be a week before you hear back from us, if it's a, just a general expression of interest, or it could be six months, uh, dependent on um, what other jobs we're advertising. We will advertise the certain positions, for example, a, an EMS position out of Canberra, well, we'll list what that is and um, we'll get, generally, we'll, we'll put in the, the requirements, so Canberra is, you know, flying B412 and you have to meet certain, I think, 3,000 uh, total time hours, 1,500 pilot in command, so uh, we'll get people directly applying to that if they just apply to the expressions of interest, and unless we've actually processed that, um, the people who've applied to the actual job will be processed with priority. So, yes, we do like to receive the um, details, um, but it, it's just a timing piece. It could be a week or, or six months before you hear back once we get to your application. But uh, we, we try to keep the applicants and CVs on file qualified as much as we can. So actually having been through, screened the applicants and spoken to them and then listed in our notes section on our system where they're interested in, and what they want to do. So, so we've almost pre-qualified them. And with that, and I'm just trying to get clear for folks listening too, so with that sort of 584 Australian pilots you said you had mm-hmm. on file, mm-hmm. when you're filling that funnel or the bench, 
do you like you pretty much find the person you need in the, in that existing CV files and without having to go externally? So is it yes. is it more the process you'll you can't fill it internally in the company? You'll go to the qualified CVs and then mm-hmm. you're just constantly topping up that list of qualified CVs as they yeah. come in throughout the year. Yeah, what we'd do is we'd advertise the position externally, so we'd get applicants with that precise information. In our expressions of interest, we have uh, pilots who've flown R22s mustering all the way through to um, EMS operators uh, flying or, or attack helicopters from the military, um, whereas the, the adverts are more targeted. Uh, we'll say we want B412 guys with this m- amount of hours. So that'll be our initial, and what we'll do is also go through the qualified guys of the 584 and add them on to that specific job so that we ha- we have a, a decent sized shortlist I suppose so so best uh, the the best chance of um, getting an immediate response within sort of one to four weeks would be to apply for that particular job and uh, with the expressions of interest um, we will add people in but again it it depends on your experience and and where you are best suited to so both I would definitely advise to put a CV into the expressions of interest and keep an eye on the website if you get any job alerts uh, then go onto the website and apply directly for that role as well. Yeah, perfect. Okay, that makes sense. And if it's been twelve, if it's been twelve months since someone's put their CV in, uh, mm-hmm. would you like them to send a you know another one to update their hours and things like that, or or it's, how current is your CV sort of file? Yeah, with um, with uh, with our system, it actually gives you a login, and you can log in at any time and update your details and update your CV. So I would definitely suggest every t- every twelve months to log back in and, and upload a, a more recent CV. When we are screening applicants, uh, if we if we are screening applicants from the general expressions of interest uh, folder, uh, and we see uh, say the the client uh, of ours says you need a minimum of three thousand hours total time, and we go through and we see. That a guy applied in 2013 and he had 2,855 hours, for example, we would we would then give him a call either way because we would assume that he would hopefully be flying 200 hours a year or so um, and he would meet those requirements then. So we, we don't just rule out on an exact uh, amount. We, we do take into consideration if the application's been in for a while and then we'd call and ask for uh, updated details. How many people in your on your team? Because this is, you know, obviously a lot of lot of work and manual sort of processing as you mm-hmm. go through. So, how big is the team? Mm-hmm. Uh, the the HR team here is made up of um, we have six people in the HR team. Uh, with recruitment, we have two people, but we also leverage our global capability. We've got um, within the global business, we have got what we call an RPO solution, which is outsourced recruitment. So we outsource uh, the recruitment to a certain extent for certain types of roles to a third party uh, recruitment agency, but they're based on SciChair with CHC. But in Australia, for the Asia Pacific region, there's two people looking after recruitment. All right. <laughs> Busy. Yeah. Okay, so we've gone through the process, we've been qualified um, and mm-hmm. uh, the company's gone back out, the recruiter's gone back out and contacted the, the air crew member. Mm-hmm. What's the process then as far as phone interviews, sure. uh, tests, background checks and things like that? How, how does that part work? Sure. Well, what we'll do is we'll screen the applicant and uh, if they have suitable experience and they, and they meet the client's requirements, we're, we're, we're governed by our client's requirements. So if they meet the client's requirements, we'll send them an email requesting further information. So we'll get them to fill out what we call an experience summary, which basically separates all of their hours. So we can see at a glance, it's a standardized way to, to see at a glance where their experience lies. You know, is it single engine? Is it multi-engine? Is it mainly instrument flying? Is it uh, sort of flying under VMC, which is sort of visual uh, rather than instruments. Um, what qualifications do they have? Do they have sling loading? Do do they have NVG qualifications? Uh, it's a standardised way for us as a business. So they fill in that um, that spreadsheet and it comes back in. At a glance, we know exactly what level of experience they have. So we'll send them some, and we'll also request copies of their ATPLs, their CASA Class Two medicals or Class One medicals. We'll request a some copies of their logbooks, uh, passport, uh, just so we can do our due diligence to ensure that uh, they do have all of the, the, the pre, pre 
requirements before we progress with face-to-face interviews. What we'll then do is um, in that email, once they've sent the documentation back to us, we'll um, gauge that documentation and their level of skills and requirements against the contract requirements. And if they are, if they do meet the requirements, uh, we'll follow up with a phone call and we'll book in a time for a phone interview. A uh, phone interview is conducted by recruitment and uh, it uh, usually takes around 40 minutes. Uh, it can be 40 minutes to an hour. We'll run through previous experience um, and uh, some behavioral type questions. Uh, give us an example of a time you've dealt with conflict in the cockpit, for example, and um, we'll run through a number of different behavioral type questions. We'll also find out details on where they're based at the moment, are they happy to relocate, and we'll discuss the recruitment process in more detail and discuss our pipelining system. So, Predominantly, the old school way of recruitment was uh, you had a vacancy, you put an ad up online, uh, you interviewed people, and you offered them a job starting in the next four weeks. But because we're constantly recruiting, we're very open and, and, and also flexible, I suppose. We don't hold it against people if they're on the waiting list, and we call them and say, hey, we've got a vacancy here, and their personal situations change, and they can no longer move. They'll still stay on the waiting list because we, we also require flexibility in that we can't give them specific dates. Um, so once the phone interview is conducted, um, we'll fly candidates to Perth and we'll pay for flights and accommodation. And um, what we'll do is we'll have a face-to-face interview, which will be with myself, head of check-in training, chief pilot. And once we've done the face-to-face interview, we'll do a situational and stress tolerance test. It's called the Wombat test. And this is a computer simulated um, type of test. You've got some joysticks and a computer screen and there's a number of different exercises you have to complete and that takes around two and a half hours and um, uh, once we've done the Wombat test, we'll get your score back from there and we will go and do a sim check ride. So the sim check ride is depending on what type of role you're going into, whether it's offshore, whether it's EMS or whether it's search and rescue. So it's different types of flying, some are multi-crew, some are single pilot IFR. So we'll, we'll run through a number of different scenarios in the sim. So the sim, the sim test, sim check ride is about an hour. Um, that's done here in Perth. Uh, and um, once we have got the results back from that sim check ride, that sim check ride is done with uh, our head of check-in trainer or a training captain and or chief pilot and myself. It's a standardized test, so we, we mark it the same way as you'd be marked uh, in a sort of check ride. Once that's completed, we'll progress to psychometric testing, which takes roughly two hours or so. And that's numerical understanding, verbal reasoning, numerical reasoning, um, spatial reasoning. And there's a number of different core competencies that, that will be tested in that psychometric test. Uh, from there, we'll progress to so, uh, police background check and also to professional reference checks uh, from people who have managed you in the past. And once we receive all of that detail back and a pre-employment medical as well with a drug and alcohol screen, once we've received all of that information back, uh, we will then... Uh, be in a position to clear you for hire if you meet all of the benchmarks. Uh, we'll clear you for hire. We'll contact you to let you know that you have been cleared for hire and that um, if we have a vacancy immediately that suits, we would then offer you that vacancy and send out a contract and you start a paperwork. If we didn't have a vacancy in the area you were interested in, we would just let you know that you've been cleared to hire and then we would... Um, contact you on a monthly basis until such time as there's a position available in that area. Wow. Does that so, make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a pretty, uh, pretty solid process. Uh, how, how, yeah. how, many, how many days are they in Perth when they come across? We get everything done and dusted in two days, um, dependent on candidate availability. Uh, sometimes pilots are already on rosters and they stopping through Perth, so we'll get the face-to-face interview and the Wombat test done here. Psychometric testing and medical testing we can do on a national basis in our own home city, so as that, that's not too much of a necessity to be in Perth for those, but we need to do the Wombat test, the face-to-face interview, and the SIM check ride here in Perth. That can all be done in one day, but what we usually do is... Um, we will do it over two days and uh, we'll fly you in, for example, fly you in on a Sunday afternoon, um, face-to-face interview, personality tests, uh, psychometric test, uh, if you'd like, uh, medical on Monday and then Tuesday we may have the SIM check ride and then the Wombat test. 
And how many of these would you do a year? How many people would you have come through and do that whole process? Um, last year we hired 114 pilots. Um, yeah. This year we're still tracking, but uh, it could be anywhere from one interview a week to four, four, five possible interviews a week. If we see pilots with great experience and skills, we will bring them in, uh, or if they pass the phone interview stage, we will bring them in regardless whether we have a position for them now or whether we think we may have a position for them in 12 months' time. We'd, uh, we'd rather get to know them and build a relationship, clear them for hire now, so that uh, if the situation does change and something comes up quicker, we'll be in a position to move quickly and offer them a role. Wow. Okay. And the wombat test, is that kind of, and you see it goes for two hours, so I guess it's a lot of components, but that's where you try and keep the ball in the middle of the circle? Similar, yes, similar to that. It's a, it's a, um, it's a, a tracking type of test where you, you have to keep uh, balls in, in, in certain circles and shapes within shapes. And then there's also numbers and, and maths thrown into it as well as bonus rounds. And uh, it tests your, I suppose, your stress tolerance. And, and we see a big um, correlation between the, the wombat score and your ability, your hand flying skills in the simulator. Um, there's a good correlation between those two. So uh, those go hand in hand with a, we have a review. Um, so once we've completed all, all of the recruitment process, I'll sit down with the head of check-in training, uh, the chief pilot, and uh, potentially a flight ops manager, and we'll run through all of the different areas that we have tested, raise any concerns, um, go through background checks, go through reference checks, and um, we'll review it, and, and the candidate will be given a score based on their performance in all different areas, and, uh, and then we'll either progress to hire or, or we won't progress to hire based on the results. Well, wow, okay. I've seen uh, in recruiting circles and things like that, there's a lot of focus now on the uh, DISC uh, profiles and things like that. Is DISC anything you guys look at as far as personality types? We tend to use uh, psychometric testing as, as, as more of a tool to help with the decision-making process and not so much a tool to rule people out or rule people in. Um, it's more so to understand the, the, the personality type, and that's included in our, our psychometric testing. But we'd like to know, uh, once we've linked in all parts of the recruitment process, usually the psych test is the, the cherry on top, as I like to call it. It's a good summary, and it, it, it either allays any concerns you may have had or, or brings any concerns up to the front when you go through that personality report and, and psych test and um, it, we, we, we don't use, there's no sort of yes or no to a psych test but it helps us throughout the whole process gauge whether our level of comfort in progressing with that candidate if that makes sense. Yeah definitely. Is there anything else about the process you wanted to touch on before we kept moving? No, that's uh, that's pretty much the the process. Again, the only other thing I'll touch on in, in the process is uh, is the timeline. Sometimes we can clear someone for hire within two weeks if they're off roster and uh, and available immediately. We've got uh, medical bookings available immediately. Uh, the psych test providers are free. We can clear someone within two weeks to hire. Um, or sometimes it can take four months if someone's on a six week on six week off roster. Can you know they can come in and get one one component done, then they're off for six weeks and then. It depends on our availability when they're back to, to fly them over to Perth, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it can take anywhere between two weeks and, and four, five, six months, depending on the candidate. Excellent. No, that's, that's good insights. All right, Mark. Uh, there's a lot of discussion, you know. Again, when the, you see the jobs advertised about the, the minimum, mm-hmm. the minimum aircrew uh, requirements for that particular position and whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I think early on you said that the the customer actually sets so. So. Yeah. Is that okay? So, so they give you a list of of what they want for their position for that particular job, and the following for that is, you know, we talk about the you know there's a minimum of two thousand hours for that job because that's what the insurance company requires. Can mm-hmm. you talk anything about how the insurance company fits in with these job requirements and how they how they pull <laughs> figures out? Yeah, we we basically don't um, we don't get involved with the insurance side. That's the, the clients uh, get involved uh, with that side of things um, from their own perspective. Uh, the the hour requirements uh, we've got OGP, so oil and gas platform minimum requirements, um, and it depends on the client. Some clients have uh, full pilot and command or captain. You need to have a minimum of five thousand hours, and there's there's no two ways about it. That's that is set in stone. Um, the if uh, other clients that we have, they may have a 3,000 hour requirement 
for a captain. And first officers, sometimes there's a bit more, I suppose, it's a lower requirements. Uh, they, they would look at sort of 500 hours, total hours, depending on the client. But majority of the oil and gas, it's set in stone and there's no two ways around it. EMS, uh, emergency medical services, that's a single pilot IFR. Um, there are minimums and uh, the EMS is, is, is highly technical flying. It's a high workload. It's single pilot uh, flying with instruments and challenging weather conditions. So their requirements are very high. Sometimes there is a little bit of leeway if they're requesting 500 hours pilot and command on multi-engine and you've got 460 hours on multi-engine but you've also got another 2,000 hours command on, on single engine, they'll take that into consideration. So if you're close within the limits, then, then sometimes there are certain waivers, but majority of the time uh, what's listed there is, is a, a prerequisite that needs to be met. And do you have any insight into the drivers behind that? You know, you often you hear it's because of insurance, but is insurance a factor or is it more that's a, um, you know, a risk management thing from the client point of view? How they sort of arrive at those figures? Sure, it is a factor, and um, again, it's 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 down to the client, but it's also uh, in an in an EMS situation where you've got uh, sort of flying 2 a.m. in the morning uh, to go and rescue someone who may have had a car accident. You want the the best of the best oil and gas. They they want the best of the best. So the the clients sort of have this their requirements are all sort of in line. Some clients have, there's, there's a bit of uh, leeway in, in different clients, but uh, essentially when you're, when you're flying for the, the for CAC and flying on some of the contracts we have, they are, they, they require the cream of the crop when it comes to pilots. So the other requirements are, are quite high. Again, you could argue that someone who's come through a military system flying Blackhawks on NVG uh, information at 1 a.m. in the morning and they've got five, 400 hours pilot in command, some may argue that that experience would be better suited than someone who's flown mustering uh, in, a, in a twin squirrel or, or something in a twin squirrel for 600 hours pilot in command. So they they kind of set the tone. We do talk with them and if we believe we've got a really strong candidate who we, we think meets all of the, the requirements to fly in those conditions, we'll definitely put them forward and wait for the client sign-off. Okay, yeah, that's, that's good insight. Alright, with the, the time we've got left, Mark, maybe we can jump into really actionable things that listeners can do to sort of just improve their, their general job applications. Uh, so, you know, as you see, you see thousands of CVs each year mm-hmm. or you've got access to them on there. Can we just go mm-hmm. through, you know, what, what's your advice for aircrew resumes and CVs? Should there be a set standard as far as the way things are laid out? Because it, like, yeah. it sounds like to, you know, even get a foot in the door, the, the biggest thing is the hours and types of endorsements. Uh, so yeah. should that go right up the top? What's, what's, the, what's your advice for CVs? So sometimes we'll get a, a CV that'll be 11 pages long and it'll, it'll almost be like an essay. And although the information in that CV is, is great, um, you can't read it at a, at a snapshot. You can't see where their experience is and, and some areas may be vague. Yes, they've got a BK117 type rating, but how many hours do they have on it? And sometimes it can be confusing. So I'd always... Um, sort of recommend making sure that uh, your details, phone number, email, a lot of time people leave off their emails or phone numbers, which makes it tricky, but make sure you've got your email phone number on the front page. On the front page, have a list of all of your endorsements and your licenses, whether you've got ATPL, NVG calls, command instrument ratings, et cetera, et cetera. And then also have a table underneath that with what aircraft type you've flown, how many total hours you have, how many pilot and command hours you have, how many total multi-engine hours you have, and uh, have a table on the first or second page uh, spelling out your technical requirements and then on the second, third page then you can list the companies you've worked in uh, for the duration of time you've been in them and list a couple of duties under them. Okay, so big focus on the on the number side of things and the qualifications and as opposed to sort of role positions and... Um... Absolutely. And if it's a deputy manager flight operations uh, position, then, then we would expect to, to see more in the, in the writing section of what you have achieved, or where you have worked, where you've seen your base pilot, what were you in charge of, how big were the bases you were running, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at a snapshot, we still need, to, when we read that CV on the 
first or second page, we want to know exactly where your level of experience is. Uh, have you, are you close for a position with our RAFSAR, which has lower requirements to get in? Um, uh, have you, you sort of are you coming off out of the commercial sector in, in regards to maybe mustering or charter flights that sort of thing and, and moving more into the multi-engine world or are you a pilot who's been flying EMS for the last five years so uh, that that first page and getting that technical information is really key and we're getting really detailed here but, but things like you know font size Mm-hmm. Um, the template people use, I can only imagine that you'd have, you know, for 100 people, there'd be 100 different styles of resume that come in. Uh, is, there a, is there a standard one you can point people to to say, hey, this, this is a, an aviation grade resume template or format? Do you know what? It's more so just keeping it clear English, clear and basic English. Um, there's no need to uh, use sort of long words and, and try and make it sound um, technical. Um, clear, concise communication, um, the dates that you've worked in the company, the technical information in a table that's easy to read. Uh, the, 12 font is fine, but just a basic type of font, uh, no no fancy writing or anything. Sometimes the, the recruitment systems you use don't read those fonts too well, and it can throw out the entire formatting and, and change tables, etc. So yeah, just your, your, a really basic format with clear, concise writing and uh, tables would, would be some advice from me. And PDF, Word doc, um, in printed, what, what, what formats are best to receive it in? You can never go wrong with a Word document um, in terms of the systems. Sometimes PDFs, uh, a lot of systems these days are automated and they have key searching capabilities for, for keywords. And what happens is PDFs are sometimes hard for these automated systems to read. So it, it may not, uh, if you've got pre-screening systems, uh, it may not uh, pull your records up when people are doing a search. So I'd always advise uh, Word documents if possible, but PDFs are fine as well. Using a professional service or a professional resume person, any recommendations there, or is it enough to just get the information through? Um... Yeah, I think I think if uh, if someone's been working um, for a business for fifteen twenty years and, and hasn't written a resume in, in, a, in a long time, it may be worth their time going to a professional CV type of business, but uh, with the likes of uh, the internet and Google in today's world, you can usually find a lot of information online, so um, just Googling sort of resume tips, CV tips, how to write a clear and concise CV, um, and and just getting a a good feel for what's required, uh, and then putting that into it. There's always going to be differences in terms of templates and and different types of experience, which may be hard to showcase in exactly the same way, so one size probably won't always fit all, but but you can get a a general idea of of what a good clear and concise uh, CV should be if you go online. Cover letters? Do you ask for cover letters in your applications or in practice? We do. We do. And, and what we do is um, when, when a resume comes in, we'll, we'll look at the resume, the technical requirements and the technical figures first. So do they meet the, the main thing is do they meet the, the client contract uh, requirements and or, or not even if they apply for that job, do they meet any of our contract requirements? Sometimes people will apply for an EMS role, we'll give them a call and say, unfortunately, you don't have the experience required for EMS, would you be interested in search and rescue? And they go, absolutely. So um, resumes and technical information first, what we'll then do is once they meet the requirements, we'll then look at their cover letters to figure out, okay, sometimes in cover letters, people say, you know, I'm happily um, located in, in Brisbane, and I'm not looking to relocate at the moment, or I'm happy to relocate anywhere else in, in the country, Etc. Etc. So yes, we do look at cover letters. Um, it, it, uh, if if you were to send one against the other, it would always be a CV. But um, uh, again, with cover letters, keeping them clear and concise. Uh, what what have you done? What's your experience? Um, what is your current situation? So where are you based? Are you interested in relocating? Etc. Etc. And and what you can offer to the role. Perfect. And another piece of advice you often read online for resumes is the fact you know you should sort of phone and follow up and things like that. Now you said that mm-hmm. it's often you know it could be a week, uh, you know, a couple of weeks mm-hmm. before someone actually replies back to you. Uh, mm-hmm. Is people phoning in? Is that a disruption because that's taking time away from actually sorting the CVs? Or do you want no, to talk to no, people? Yeah, we're always open to people following up again. The power of LinkedIn, um, if you've put in an application and, and you, you connect uh, on LinkedIn, you can send a message saying to the recruiter, hey, uh, just 
uh, wanted to follow up, you know, put my CV in onto your expressions of interest. Uh, uh, do you have any update at the moment? We do spend a lot of time in interviews and some check rides and wombat tests and, and all of that. So sometimes we aren't available for phone calls, but I'd always say within within a week or two of putting in an application, definitely phone up, uh, follow up with a phone call to get an update uh, if possible. And sometimes we may say... Uh, Unfortunately, we're out of the office for the next two weeks. We'll, we'll update you within the next four weeks or sometimes we'll have an update on that day. But I'll, def- I'll definitely recommend following up with a phone call. It also differentiates yourself from from the rest of the CVs in there and, um, and recruiters can start uh, sort of um, putting two and two together and, and, and can have a discussion with you. Okay, thanks, Mark. Okay, we've mentioned LinkedIn a couple of times. So do you want to just mm-hmm. yeah, talk about... Uh, LinkedIn. How would you find the recruiters for a company? Would you go to the the company LinkedIn page, and would they be listed yep, there? Yep. You can do a search, so you can just search for all people who work for CHC, and it'll pull up a list of everyone who's listed CHC as a, a company. Uh, you can go down, or you can type in recruiter CHC, um, and it should pull up all of the recruiters who work for CHC. You can simply connect, uh, send a send a message on LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn, uh, I always advise people to keep their their LinkedIn profiles up to date. Sometimes people sort of uh, log into LinkedIn and uh, they'll have a profile that uh, they, they don't really keep up to date. They may get a message saying, hey, we've noticed your skills and experience. We've got a vacancy that would suit. They, haven't, they don't check their LinkedIn that much. And four months later, they check their LinkedIn and they see that they've got a, a message. They ring up and, and that vacancy is gone. So I suppose for LinkedIn, it's more so just making sure that that it's been checked once a month or once every couple of weeks. And if you're going to use LinkedIn to, to try and get as much information on your profile page as possible. Um, so what aircraft types have you flown? What are your hours looking like? What qualifications do you have? Are you after management roles or are you after flying roles? Are you after both? And also to connect with um, uh, like-minded individuals or, or recruiters from companies and, and don't be shy to send a message saying, hey, uh, just wanted to ask if you wouldn't mind looking at my profile and uh, do you think uh, I would be suitable for any positions or, or can you point me in the right direction? Um, we can have a look and go, well, you'd need your command instrument rating, so you'd need to go and do that before we could consider you. But once you've done that, please feel free to get in touch. They can go off, spend a couple of months, get their command instrument rating or what have you, whatever they need, and then send a message back saying, hey, I'm ready. Um, can we chat? And then we can bring them through the recruitment process. So um, it is a very powerful tool and I'm finding a lot more and there's a lot more pilots using LinkedIn now than, say, a year or two ago, which which is great. Okay, that's really uh, useful information. So, yeah, you're definitely happy for people to be connecting on LinkedIn and asking that Absolutely. sort of career, that, asking that career advice and, and starting that conversation really early on in the piece. Absolutely. Okay, and from that again, just I guess talking about that, you, you all the recruiters there are actively actually approaching people on LinkedIn. Yes. And okay. Definitely, and that's more more so at the senior end of the market. So, um, if you're looking for specialist roles, um, it could be safety sensitive roles or highly technical engineering roles, avionics. Um, it could be uh, deputy manager flight operations, where they have to have really high requirements in order to fulfil the the CASA obligations of being a delegate uh, under the chief pilot, etc. So those roles will we'll, we'll actively uh, sort of pipeline. We'll go through searches and we'll put people into into folders and then we'll uh, start communicating with them. Uh, are you interested in career vacancies? And um, sometimes people say, not at the moment. Um, I've got another three months, four months before I finish off a project. I'd be interested then. Um, that's fantastic. And uh, we can put reminders in our diaries to touch base with them in three or four months. And uh, and then we're building a relationship and again, pre-qualifying candidates. So when the need does arise and we do have a vacancy, we've got some people we can go to immediately. Okay. Look, that's a heap of information. And yeah, look, there's quite a few things in there that I've taken away that were different to, I guess, my initial uh, looking from the outside in, you know, what how things would work and, and what the approach mm-hmm. would be, because uh, yeah, sometimes you think you, know, you might be annoying recruiters by sort of uh, making early contact when you don't fit the requirements and things like that. So no, uh, not at all, that's not at all. really interesting hearing that mindset. Yeah, well, very, and and um, I may be speaking to a guy today um, who who doesn't meet our requirements, but uh, in in June next year he may be very suitably qualified for any of our contracts. Uh, I, I'm I'm very happy to point people in the right direction, and um, and and because what we tend what we tend to see is we may 
talk to a lot of pilots now and may not have a need, but next year we may have a need that suits them down to the T and uh, we've already built a relationship and we've, we've kept in contact and uh, we can then reach out to them and say, hey, we've got a vacancy. What are your hours looking like? Oh, fantastic. You meet the requirements. Well, we've got a position vacant here. Are you interested? Yes. Here we go. Here's your contract. Do you start in four weeks? Fantastic. I've got one question here that um, one of the people, one of the folks sent on, Nathan sent it on Facebook, and then we might mm-hmm. um, basically give a plug for your details and how folks can connect sure. and, and go through that process. So I've mm-hmm. got a question here for Nathan. He's obviously referring to a, a job description uh, somewhere he's seen, and the job yep. description required 500 uh, offshore hours for a co-pilot mm-hmm. position. And the question yep. relates to, you know, it's a bit of a catch-22. You don't get those offshore hours unless you're, you know, an offshore job, but you need, you need the offshore hours to, to get the offshore job. Um, yes. So in those situations, yeah, mm-hmm. how, how do the requirements get set? And I guess how do you how do you get a foot in the door to, to meet those requirements? Sure. What we tend to do is uh, our RAFSAR contract, our search and rescue contract, you get a lot of experience flying offshore. And, um, I mean, your, your second day on the job, for example, for, for, uh, it could, you could be winching someone off a moving platform, a ship platform at night. Um, you get that really good um, experience. It's multi-crew. It's um, IFR experience. And you can build your offshore hours through our SAR. Um, business. So, if uh, for for Nathan, if he's if he's got a lot of experience but doesn't have that 500 hours offshore, we would we would then discuss certain options with him for our our search and rescue contract. And um, um, if he's successful throughout the recruitment process, and we we offered him a job, he could stay in the in the search and rescue for for a couple of years until he built up his hours, and uh, and then he could um, put in uh, for a, a transfer into our offshore oil and gas business. Uh, um, if that would be the case, so we we do come up against that question a lot is um, people who, who meet all the criteria except the 500 hours offshore. Um, cadet programs, sometimes a client, if, uh, if we're running cadet programs uh, on behalf of a client, they may look at an ICAS program, so in command under supervision, or, or, or they may look at a program where as, so long as the, the captain of that uh, aircraft has so many hours, they will be allowed to fly with an FO who doesn't have the offshore hours until such time as they've built their own offshore hours. So those are probably the, the, the ways you can get in. Marine pilot transfer, sometimes Sometimes, um, depending on how far offshore you're flying, um, could be a good way to get some exposure to flying uh, offshore off the coast and dependent on whether the client's willing to accept that uh, as sort of recognized prior experience. Um, that could also be a way to get that offshore hours up. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a perfect answer. And I wasn't going to read this one, but I'll give him the, the credit anyway. He left a, a message on the Facebook page. So this is from Clay Marks, and mm-hmm. uh, he asked, can I have a job? Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, I think you've answered pretty much those questions that we've gone through. So, Clay, uh, you can listen in and, and follow up the details. All right, Mark. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, Mark, so what's the, the next step, I guess, if folks are interested, um, how they mm-hmm. connect with, with you? First of all, um, if they want to head on to the CHC webpage, uh, have a look at our current vacancies or expressions of interest. put in details on our expressions of interest. Uh, sometimes if people approach me on LinkedIn and they don't have a LinkedIn profile set up properly, they start talking job, um, what what jobs do you have vacant? It, it's hard for me to have that discussion until I've looked at their experience and worked out where they're best suited to, you know, is it the search and rescue, is it EMS, is it offshore? Um, so what what the, generally, if they apply online first, then at least we've got their details on file. Um, they can then connect with me on LinkedIn and um, I'm happy to uh, set up times to discuss with them. They can call me. Um, uh, they can call the CHC Perth head office number and, and, and request my, for to be put through to me, and I'll be happy to have a discussion. Um, but it helps once their details are on file. If I get a message through LinkedIn, I can respond to them. If we set up a time to call, I can then search for their details. So I've got their details in front of me when we're having a discussion. Um, if I don't have those details, the, it makes the discussion quite difficult um, because I'm not too sure where they suited to or where their experience lies. So um, if they apply online and uh, and then follow up um, with LinkedIn or, or a phone call, or um, I'm, I'm happy to uh, discuss options with them moving forwards from there. Mark, thank you so much. You're obviously a, a busy guy uh, running that section and having a lot of stuff go through. So I really appreciate the time to sort of uh, share that process and what people can do. And I'll have links, those links you mentioned, I'll have those in the, the show notes. So if you listen to the episode, head over to the website and you'll be able to follow those links through and find Mark. 
And uh, yeah, if you're listening, jump on the LinkedIn and, and update your LinkedIn profile. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Mick. Uh, and uh, yeah, any questions, please feel free to follow up with an email. But um, um, yeah, thanks a lot for your time as well. Okay, thanks, Mark. Cheers. Chat soon. Cheers, bye. Okay, so what do you guys have to do? You've got to get your LinkedIn profile up to speed as soon as you can and then start contacting recruiters early and build that relationship up now uh, before you need it when you're going in cold for a, a job in the future. So quick word for our, our sponsors. So again, this episode is gratefully sponsored by trainmorepilots.com and it's a website where you can go if you're a, a flying school operator or even just an aviation operator in general and you want some marketing ideas. Uh, you can go there and download a whole heap of tools and resources that's going to help you market your flying school or your aviation business. You can also look for a banner on the website at rotarywingshow.com that will take you through to the website there. So that's trainmorepilots.com. When you're on the website, you also get to see photos and sometimes a video that goes along with each of these episodes. And if we mention links in the episodes, then they're normally in the episode show notes as well. And also, if you haven't downloaded the the list of the top 10 helicopter books for helicopter aircrew as voted by the show listeners, then that is on the website too. So see how many of those you've actually read yourself when you download that. So that's rotarywingshow.com. Look, if you're getting value out of these shows and you enjoy listening to them each time they come out, then please share the show on social media or leave a review on iTunes. And that really helps me get the, the message out in terms of getting episodes in front of more people and adding to the community of switched on helicopter operators which are people just like you. Okay, I'm interviewing tonight a, an around-the-world record holder, so that should be in the bag shortly and be a future episode coming up, which should be super interesting too. So look, thanks very much for joining me on the Rotary Wing Show. I'm Mick Cullen, and wishing you a great week ahead, and see you next time. <laughs>